On this episode of EHS on Tap, OSHA's new record-keeping rule, what's in store for drug testing and employer retaliation, we address the Occupational Health and Safety Administration's recent rulemaking on reporting injuries in the workplace and how work-related injuries can trigger drug testing and employer retaliation. On this episode of EHS on Tap, OSHA's new record-keeping rule, what's in store for drug testing and employer retaliation, we address the Occupational Health and Safety Administration's recent rulemaking on reporting injuries in the workplace and how work-related injuries can trigger drug testing and employer retaliation. Today, we are speaking with attorney Adele Abrams. Adele heads a nine-attorney firm that represents employers and contractors nationwide in OSHA and MSHA litigation. She also provides safety and health training, auditing, and consultation services. She is a certified mine safety professional and a Department of Labor approved trainer. Ms. Abrams is on the adjunct faculty of Catholic University in Washington, D.C., where she teaches employment and labor law. Ms. Abrams is also a professional member of the American Society of Safety Engineers and is a co-author of several safety-related textbooks. She is chair of the National Safety Council's Business and Industry Division, Committee on Regulatory and Legal Affairs. Welcome to the podcast, Adele. Well, thank you. It's great to be here. Okay, so today we're going to talk about the new OSHA rule that goes into effect in a few short weeks on November 1st. Adele, I was wondering if you could start us out with some of the basics of the OSHA's new record-keeping rule. Well, I'd be happy to. And what we're talking about here is the OSHA electronic record-keeping rule, uh, which, for the most part, uh, requires employers to submit uh, their data on injuries and illnesses electronically starting in 2017. And there are different requirements for the data submission depending upon the size of the employer, uh, 250 employees and up. All employers are covered by the data submission requirements. And then for high hazard industries, employers with work sites uh, where you've got individuals uh, uh, from 20 to 249 employees would be covered by the rule. And there are different requirements. Uh, it's, it's a bit staggered in terms of its implementation. Uh, for the first year in 2017, uh, July 1st uh, to be precise, uh, both large and smaller employers will have to submit just the OSHA uh, 300 log. And then in subsequent years, the larger employers will also have to be submitting their OSHA 301 logs. Now, that is the data submission provisions, and of course, um, that has caught a lot of heat and light because one of the issues in this is that OSHA is going to publish this data on their website, uh, OSHA.gov, and it's all going to be searchable, it's going to be transparent data, so it will be identifiable by employer name. The information on the employees themselves is going to be redacted, so there will be uh, some privacy for the injured employees, but there's been concern about reverse engineering on that. Now, the other part of the rule actually incorporates by reference Section 11C uh, of the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970, and that is the anti-retaliation or anti-discrimination provisions uh, of the OSH Act. Um, And they've also included some provisions in here for employers in terms of their methods of reporting injuries, uh, 
that that these have to be reasonable, that employees have to be trained on them. Right. And those provisions, the anti-retaliation, are going to kick in on November 1st, 2016. Mm-hmm. Those are in litigation right now. So uh, there is a little bit of, of uh, I guess, uh, uncertainty about whether uh, an injunction is going to be granted by the court to stay the implementation of the anti-retaliation provisions uh, or whether OSHA will voluntarily kick that effective date out further. It was originally supposed to have taken effect in August, and OSHA voluntarily pushed it out to November 1st, 2017, uh, 2016, yeah. excuse me, because they said that they wanted time to uh, develop more guidance on this matter. Interesting. So there's there's quite a few uh, regulations embedded within this new rule, it seems. One thing I want, I think, and you touched on it a little bit, the, the new rule requires uh, employers to ensure that their employees are reporting all their work-related injuries as well as illnesses. And it's up to the employer to establish some sort of procedure for the employees to do this so long as the procedures are reasonable, which you mentioned. So I was wondering if we can kind of expand on what's reasonable uh, reporting procedures and, you know, do they have to be in writing or pinpoint a certain date? You know, what are the requirements to make sure that it's it's reasonable? Well, uh, the short answer is while the OSHA rule does not require these procedures uh, specifically to be in writing, uh, as a practical matter, if you have unwritten procedures, they are going to be found to be subjective. They are going to be found to be uh, applied in a disparate manner. Um, it's going to be very, very difficult for an employer to demonstrate to OSHA that they do, in fact, have reasonable procedures and that they have instructed the employees on what those are. So looking at this strictly from a legal perspective, um, if you don't have the procedures in writing, you're, you're pretty crazy mm-hmm. uh, because you're just going to be opening yourself up uh, to all sorts of litigation uh, f- uh, for claims of disparate treatment. Um, now, in terms of what would be considered reasonable reporting procedures, this is the wild card in here because OSHA really hasn't given any guidance on this yet, and uh, they've had, they, they came out with this rule back in May, and at the time we're taping this, which is uh, less than a month from the implementation date of the anti-retaliation provisions, uh, they still haven't really uh, given any kind of bright lines uh, for employers to follow. Looking at it from my perspective as both a safety and health attorney and an employment attorney, um, again, need to be in writing. There needs to be flexibility, but at the same time, not so much flexibility that it's open uh, to subjective enforcement. Uh, At a minimum, you should indicate what information needs to be reported by the employee, to whom it needs to be reported, Uh, If you have forms that an employee would fill out in order to to constitute a first report of injury, uh, obviously you would want to make those forms available to the employees uh, readily uh, Mm -hmm. so that they don't have to physically be in the workplace to fill out the form. Uh, Perhaps an online form would be one method of doing that. You would want to indicate to whom the injuries and illnesses need to be reported. In other words, do you report it to your immediate supervisor? Do you need to report it to the HR director? Do you need to report it to the internal safety director? Right. Do you need to report it to in-house counsel? Because if you don't tell people how to report it, you can't come back and say that they didn't follow your procedures. 
So this is, you know, the same routine you would run through for anything, whether it's reporting sexual harassment in the workplace or reporting safety hazards. You need to have a clear, delineated line of communication so employees and the employer are both on the same page. Now, having said that, you also have to have a certain amount of flexibility. Uh, One of the things that, for example, would get an employer uh, into trouble would be if you said you must report all injuries by the end of the shift to your immediate supervisor and otherwise you'll be fired. Well, there's a couple of different permutations on this. Let's say an employee is injured, but their immediate supervisor has gone home for the day, so they can't report it to Mm -hmm. that individual. If your policies are not written with enough flexibility that it says your immediate supervisor or his or her designee, and the employee waits for the next day when their supervisor is is back in the office to report the injury, and then you turn around and discipline or terminate the employee because they didn't report it the same day that the the incident occurred, you know, you've put them in a no-win situation. Right, yeah, and it Uh, it seems like a lot of this is is really just setting up, communicating, setting up procedures that communicate effectively between employer and employee on what to do and how to do it. Right, and and just to expand upon this a a little bit, though, um, the other twist on this would be, let's say the employee is seriously injured. You know, they're they're hit on the head, knocked unconscious, they're taken to the hospital, and they're in a coma. Clearly, that individual isn't going to be filling out paperwork for you that day. And so your policy, to be reasonable, would have to say, you know, where, where possible, report it the same day, you know, you would also have, you know, or as soon as the injured worker is able to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would need to have some flexibility in there as well for a designated person, perhaps a spouse or a next of kin, to report the, the uh, information to the employer. Now, as a practical matter, most injuries occur right in the workplace, and certainly supervisors should be aware of it. So that would be another component. If, you're, if, if it's a witnessed incident and it isn't reported that same day, it's hard to justify disciplining or terminating an employee because you're, you know, you're claiming that the employer didn't have notice of it when, in fact, a supervisor witnessed it. So, again, you're going to have to take all of these considerations uh, into account when, when crafting your policy. Yeah. Um, the final nail in the coffin, <laughs> to put it this way, because th- third on a match, whatever you want to say, <laughs> is that you could be, because we've got 50 different states with 50 different state workers' compensation law requirements, you also are going to have to be sensitive to that. And if your state workers' comp board has uh, requisites uh, for how an employee reports an injury, obviously you would have to take those into account. Uh, because the employer very often has a, a uh, timeline for when they file a first report of injury to their workers' comp insurance carrier or to the state workers' compensation board. And so they have a vested interest in getting this information in a timely manner so that they can fulfill their statutory obligations. And so, again, to the extent that you can cross-reference state law in your policy, that is going to strengthen uh you know, it's it's uh, legitimacy. I guess is a good way yeah. to put it. Yeah. Well, th- those are all all definitely all good tips. So I want to. I think you already also touched on this um, at the very beginning, but when we were talking about how the new record keeping rule applies to 
um, workplaces with a certain number of employees and then those high hazard industries uh, with fewer employees. So my question to you, Adele, is if OSHA is gathering all of this data, you know, what are they going to do with it? And I think you, you did say that um, they are going to uh, redact any individual employee names, but um, the bigger picture is, is if I get injured in the workplace, is my injury going to be broadcast to the entire world? Well, and there is a possibility of that, that's, that's for sure. And I want to clarify one thing here very quickly, and that is that while the data submission provisions only apply to employers with 20 or, or more employees in high hazard industries or 250 or more employees in all industries, the anti-retaliation provisions, what we were talking about, about having reasonable procedures, mm -hmm. about how to report injuries and all of that, and not uh, retaliating against workers because they've reported an injury, uh, those apply to all employers. So even the companies you know, with five guys uh, are going to be covered by that. Uh, so I don't want people to be misled and think that they, if they have under 20 employees that they also can discriminate at will against workers because right. that is not the case. That, that is linked to Section 11C of the OSH Act, and that applies if you have a single employee or more, you are covered by Section 11C and the anti-retaliation provisions. Um, now, going back to your question here in terms of what OSHA is going to do with the data, um, they use this data for uh, multiple reasons. Uh, first of all, under the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970, OSHA is directed by Congress to compile injury and illness data, and they are to use that to carry out all of their statutory activities under the Act. So they are to use this to guide them in their uh, crafting enforcement initiatives. They are to use this to spot emergent health uh, or safety hazards uh, that are in need of regulation. Uh, so they would also use this uh, for targeting employers under the site-specific targeting uh, uh, inspection program, which is one of the categories of programmed inspections. And they, in that, they look for employers who have higher than average incidence rates mm -hmm. for their high-hazard industries, and that's how they select which employers to come visit. Those are the lowest right. priority of OSHA inspections, I might add, but they still do it. So, so that's one use of it. They also will use this data to identify where national or, or uh, regional or local emphasis programs might be needed for certain industry sectors. Um, so there, there's really you know, a lot yeah. of, of useful purposes for getting this data. And frankly, up until now, they've sent questionnaires out to, I think, around 70 or 80,000 employers nationwide, and those employers have had to submit their actual data. But of course, it hasn't been published on the website, and it's really, you're just getting mm -hmm. kind of a fraction whereas uh, of, the, of the covered employers, whereas once this rule actually takes effect, uh, you know, a majority of employers, uh, at least of 20 and, and above, are going to be covered by this. And so OSHA is going to have really more precise data to deal with. Um, the downside, of course, is that this is going to be transparent. It will be publicly accessible. And that is going to be uh, potentially harmful to companies that don't have great track records who might be bidding on contracts, especially mm -hmm. those in the construction industry, uh, who might be applying for government contracts, and that could be both manufacturers and service providers, as well as construction companies. Um, 
but also companies that, say, might be looking to open up a greenfield operation and they're going through permitting and zoning. Um, this is going to enable the NIMBYs, those who right. say not in my not backyard, my backyard for yeah. companies, to be able to go into a public hearing at the county level or the city level and wave papers around and say, this company has had X number of injuries, and let me tell you about them. And they'll be right. able to give you chapter and verse about amputations or blindings or you know uh, back injuries or falls or whatever, electrocutions, whatever the issues are. They'll have that actual data about that actual employer. And this also, frankly, allows a local paper that maybe is short on mm-hmm. copy to look up employers in their neighborhood and just publish this information in local papers as well. So there is that concern. Now to your final question, um, which was about uh, whether individual employees could be singled out by this, while OSHA has said that they are going to be redacting the personal identifiers and of course the, uh, the 301s, which are the individual incident reports, will only have to be submitted by employers with 250 or more employees starting in 2018. The fact is that a lot of that information, even if it doesn't have my name attached to it, anybody from the company who reads it is going to be able to figure out who it is. People from other, other uh, locations within the same company can probably look at it and reverse engineer it because, you know, if, if right. a report says someone, you know, someone, an employee was run over by a forklift, Hopefully, that's only happening once, right. you know, and, and everybody is going to know who the person is who was out with the broken leg or whatever the injuries sure. were. Where it gets a little more difficult is in the privacy cases. Let's say, God forbid, you have somebody who was sexually assaulted in the workplace and suffers injuries as a result. Currently, that case would go on a privacy log. And so that information would not readily be available to other employees in the workplace. But if that information, you know, is put on the website of OSHA, even if the employee's name is not there, maybe there's only one woman in the particular workforce. And now they know that someone has been sexually assaulted in the workplace. It isn't going to take a rocket scientist to figure out who that individual is. Or to make this gender gender neutral, let's say somebody has a, a testicular injury in the workplace. Sure. Um, and that goes on a privacy log because private parts are, are involved. Again, it would be very easy for somebody to reverse engineer it and figure out, you know, that there's only one or two people in that job classification. And now they know who oh, had that is. injury to that sensitive part. Yeah, that sounds that sounds uh, very uh, very interesting. How this will all play out, um, you know, if it gets it goes into effect in in November for, on November first. Um, okay, so Adele, I want to get into another issue. I, I know we keep going a little bit back and forth within the same rule about retaliation and reporting, but I want to I want to focus on kind of what I um, had intended. Um, the meat of today's podcast to be, which is drug testing and employer retaliation. So in some respect, this rulemaking has been said to deter employee reporting of injuries because of the risk of employer retaliation via drug testing. Um, can you perhaps speak just a little bit about what th- what this is and what it means? Well, uh, yes, uh, of course. And uh, 
the question actually changes this a little bit, but I want to, again, be clear on this. The rulemaking was finalized because they feel current practices deter employee reporting of injuries uh, because of the risk of retaliation. And so what they are trying to do now is create a safe environment so employees will feel free to report injuries and illnesses without fear of being retaliated against by employers. And if, if you can bear with me, just to set the stage here, uh, there, there was initially an OSHA record-keeping national emphasis program that was launched early on in the Obama administration in 2009. And they sent out questionnaires as part of this. They had questionnaires for employers. They had them for medical providers. They also had them for employees. And among the questions in the employees questionnaire was, A, do you consider post-accident drug testing to be discipline? And then B, if, so, if you answered yes to that, do you consider uh, the fact that you would be drug tested, would that deter you from reporting injuries? Okay. And OSHA started this whole national emphasis program predicated on this theory uh, that they had that uh, basically, uh, you know, incentive and discipline programs were having a chilling effect on employees reporting injuries. And so uh, following that national emphasis program and, and the receipt of all the data they compiled in that, they found over 50% of the audited employers had actual underreporting of injuries based upon their interviews with employees at the subject uh, locations and everything. And so in 2012, OSHA put out a program, uh, 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 not a program, a policy letter, and it was aimed internally, but of course it was released uh, publicly, and so everybody got into the act. And what it basically says is that incentive programs that are based on lagging indicators, um, such as going a period of time without a lost time injury, and giving an employee a prize, a party, a chance on a widescreen TV, you know, whatever mm -hmm. uh, the incentive program is, uh, as long as they didn't get injured, or giving a whole work crew a prize or a party or whatever because no one on the team got injured, that those had the chilling effect of suppressing injury reporting because nobody would want to lose their, their benefit. They right, their incentive, lose, yeah. Uh, the prize, or they wouldn't want to screw it up for the rest of the members of their work crew. They felt that there could be, again, peer pressure. You know, yeah, to, oh, right. You know, you cut, you cut your, you cut your finger, Emily. But <laughs> just, you know, we're two days away from getting our our big award, so suck it up, put a bandaid on it, don't go and get stitches because that's going to be a recordable, and then you're going to blow it for everybody. Right. So okay. in this policy, and and it, it is important to understand what came first because that is the overlay on which this rule is now based. They said no lagging indicator incentive programs. They've even gone so far as to say if you're in the voluntary protection program and you have one of these incentive programs, we're going to take your, pro your VPP status away. We're going to come and grab your flag. On the discipline side, there were a couple of different uh, twists in the policy that OSHA put out, and this carries over into the rule so you can consider this guidance as to what is, is involved. Um, they said, first of all, if you are disciplining somebody because they didn't report the injury in the time or manner that the employer required, 
that OSHA was going to carefully scrutinize that to see whether it was a Section 11C violation, which is the whistleblower protections. They also said they would look to see if it was a violation of Section 1904, which is the uh, or, or Part 1904, uh, which is where you have to report the injuries. Uh, because obviously, if the employee doesn't report it, then the employer would be in violation by not having uh, recorded this injury on their log. So this is the part of the policy that this rule grew out of in saying you must have reasonable procedures for reporting injuries. Um, the second thing is they said that if you are disciplining a worker who was injured uh, because they violated a safety rule, they're going to look at whether the employee who was injured and violated the rule was disciplined in a disparate manner, in other words, more harshly than someone who violated the rule but was not injured. So the example of that would be uh, you've got two folks who aren't wearing their hard hats. They're both in a position where they should be wearing hard hats, and uh, it's a first offense for both. One person doesn't get injured, they get a verbal warning about wearing their hard hat. The other person gets hit on the head and suffers a re an OSHA recordable injury, and for their first offense, they get terminated because they violated the safety rule for not wearing the hard hat. In that case, the non-injured person getting a verbal warning versus the injured person being suspended or terminated would be the disparate treatment. Mm -hmm. And that goes to the heart of what OSHA uh, is now memorializing in this new rule that uh, takes effect November 1st. Um, so they're going to critically scrutinize how you're applying and enforcing your safety rules. And if they find that you're doing it only against people who've been injured but not people who haven't been injured, obviously that is a case that OSHA would be looking to take. And, and the big turnaround on this is that now with the codification of Section 11C in 29 uh, CFR 1904.35 and 36, which are the anti-retaliation uh, provisions of this new rule, uh, they can now fine the company up to $125,000 per violation, even if the employee doesn't file a Section 11C uh, retaliation complaint. Yeah. So this is a lot of new power that OSHA has now. Now, on the drug testing part, the actual rule itself does not mention drug testing. If you look at the codified provisions in 1904.35 and 1904.36, the problem is that OSHA, in explaining this rule, has now come out and said that they believe drug testing programs uh, can have a chilling effect on mm -hmm. people reporting injuries. Again, right. this relates back to that national emphasis program I was talking about. And so they have said now that if an employer is drug testing people who have been injured uh, re without regard for whether their, their uh, potential impairment was a causal factor, they view that as a violation of Section 11C, the anti-retaliation provisions. There are some carve-outs on this. They've said if you have to drug test because you are legally required to do so, and a good example of that would be under the U.S. Department of Transportation's uh, uh, regulations for commercial drivers. If a commercial driver is involved in an accident, they need to be drug tested. And so OSHA is not going to go after an employer who is obligated by another federal or state law to do the drug testing. Okay. Um, 
Similarly, if you are under a collective bargaining agreement uh, in a union workplace right now, and if your union collective bargaining agreement specifies that anyone who is injured in an accident or becomes ill in the workplace is drug tested, then you can follow along with that because, again, if you didn't do so, you would be in a breach of contract situation. Um, if you are a government contractor, and if the you know, or you are are in a multi-employer construction, you know, complex construction project, and there are provisions in your contractual documents that say thou shalt drug test anyone who is injured on on our property, then you've got to do it. And again, OSHA is going to consider that a safe harbor for you. But in all other situations. What they have been saying, and again, they have not formalized this in mm -hmm. guidance to this point, uh, but what they've been saying is that, uh, let's use my forklift accident as an example. You've got an employee who is standing there minding their own business. They are wearing all of their personal protective equipment. They are in the lane that has been delineated for pedestrians to walk around in the warehouse. They're minding their own business. They're doing 100% what they're supposed to be doing. You've got another employee who loses control of their forklift, crosses out of the forklift-only area, and rams into this guy who is standing there minding his own business in the pedestrian zone. In that situation, let's say both workers are injured. The worker who was operating the forklift and was operating it in an erratic manner contrary to their training, an employer could reasonably say, that they are suspicious that he might have been impaired, and that would be a legitimate justification for drug testing that injured worker, the operator of the mm -hmm. forklift. Turn okay. it around. The guy who was the pedestrian, it doesn't matter, you know, whether he had smoked a joint that morning or whether he <laughs> had, had, you know, been drinking vodka on his lunch hour before the accident occurred. The fact is he was doing nothing wrong. And there is no legitimate reason for an employer to suspect that impairment of that injured employee was a causal factor at all in this accident. And those are the drug tests that OSHA really has a problem with, is the innocent bystander basically who was injured through no fault of their own and yet could be subject to discipline or termination if it turns out that you know they test positive because they had smoked marijuana the night before. So those are their concerns. And, and OSHA realistically uh, has a belief that the person who smoked marijuana the night before, even if they aren't impaired, but they know their test is going to be dirty, they're not going to report an injury if they can help it because they know it will result in their termination. So that's really how this all has come, to, come into fruition, and that is where OSHA mm -hmm. feels that uh, you know drug testing of everybody, blanket policy, could have a deterrent effect on people reporting uh, incidents to the employer. And that, of course, prevents the employer from uh, doing root cause investigations if they don't get uh, timely information. So, okay, Adele, yeah, I had, uh, I guess I'll just follow up with your hypothetical with the, the two forklift, the driver and the innocent bystander that were both injured. Um, I guess my question is, so if the company, absent any... Uh, um, state, other state regulations or union or contracts, and the company goes ahead and drug tests both, both the forklift driver and the innocent bystander, 
would the innocent bystander have a retaliation claim against their employer, potentially? The way this rule is written uh, right now, I would say yes. Yeah. And, you know, because, again, they, there's no reasonable suspicion. And I think really, you know, that's kind of at the heart of it. OSHA's trying to push this back to eliminate post-accident drug testing mm -hmm. as a classification and to kick it back into just the reasonable, reasonable suspicion uh, category. So I know, you know, you and I had, had previously discussed some hypotheticals and, uh, you know, if you want to kind of run through your hypotheticals, I can respond to those because they are a little bit of a different yeah. twist than the hypothetical I just gave. Okay, sure. So the hypothetical that, um, for the listeners that are tuning in, the hypothetical I came up with was a single man, his name's Bob, and he works at the local grocery store in the meat department. And Bob has never, this is the first time injury, he's never reported an injury before, but unfortunately, just the other day, he lost a finger while slicing deli meat. Okay, it happens all the time, I'm sure. And he promptly reported the injury, as did the grocery store. So the day after the injury, the grocery store says they need to conduct a routine drug test on Bob to determine whether, um, uh, to rule out whether or not, uh, to rule out if Bob was inebriated or under the influence of drugs while at work or if the machine simply malfunctioned. So my question was, does Bob have a retaliation claim since this uh, was his first work-related injury and he didn't seem to really be inebriated or um, under the influence, um, as well as doing a drug test the following day does not prove that he was inebriated at the moment of the accident. So how would this situation sort of play out um, with the facts that I kind of have come up with here, Adele? Yeah, well, um, and, and this is actually a good hypothetical because it has a few moving parts to it. Uh, first of all, you know, the grocery store does have an obligation to do a root cause incident investigation because, in this case, it's an amputation. So now this is something that has to be reported to OSHA within 24 hours. And anybody who's, who's listening to this who's been through this process knows that either OSHA is going to ask you 20 questions on the phone or you're going to fill out the online form that's going to ask you 20 questions. And you're going to have to have information uh, to respond to those, including whether there were, was machinery mal malfunction. So it's a legitimate uh, business reason for looking into the causal factors of this. And, in fact, they now under this new uh, severe injury reporting rule, which is the one that kicked in last uh, January 1st, 2015, they have a legal obligation to do this. They don't have a legal obligation to drug test, however, just to do the root cause investigation. Now, in this situation, um, you know, the fact that he had never previously had a work-related injury is not a factor at all. You know, okay. we may say in, in the legal field every dog gets one bite, but it's not true that every worker <laughs> gets one injury before being tested. Um, so that that is uh, a little bit of a, a red herring in this particular uh, fact pattern. Okay. Now, um, the other part of it, though, is that the employer blew it here big time uh, because they did not order the drug testing to be done when Bob went to the hospital to have his uh, amputation treated. And as you pointed out, if you wait until the next day to do testing, it's not going to be reflective of what the conditions were at the time. Mm -hmm. And for certain substances, uh, you may be able to extrapolate. But for example, maybe he did uh, have a little nip of vodka on his lunch hour prior to the accident. 
Uh, if they wait to test him until the next day, it's not going to capture that. All it's going to capture are certain categories of drugs. Similarly, if the test had been done at the time of the accident, um, you know, and he had, had say, uh, used cocaine a day and a half earlier, it would capture it then, whereas if you wait another 24 hours, the cocaine might have cleared his system. Mm -hmm. Now, marijuana, on the other hand, tends to stay in your system for up to 30 days, so you will capture use, but you won't necessarily re reflect impairment. And that's one of the problems, obviously, with, with 25 states and the District of Columbia all having marijuana legal to some, in some way or another now. Uh, they do need drug tests that are more precise and can capture impairment by marijuana, but that's probably a subject for another, another, <laughs> another, another podcast. Another day. Uh, so, so in this case, if you are going to be drug testing and alcohol testing as an employer, it's critical to have it done as close in time to the incident as possible because otherwise it's going to be garbage in and garbage out in terms of the information you get. And if you're basing employment decisions, you know, on on bad information, you're going to make bad decisions. Yeah, so, okay, going along with the same situation, and I think we can kind of compare both of the hypotheticals with the forklift drivers and Bob in the meat department, and you had mentioned earlier about the reasonable suspicion. So if you add a second person um, to my hypothetical with Bob in the, in the meat department, and you perhaps have somebody that could as a witness could verify that he was acting strangely or oddly maybe inebriated or that they even could smell uh, liquor on him would that be enough um, to change uh, the retaliation claim or and, and perhaps protect the employer from a retali retaliation claim um, I, I feel absolutely it would because now you're not necessarily testing under the post-accident provisions. You're testing under reasonable suspicion. Now, the coworker, you know, to play devil's advocate here, uh, the HR people uh, who would be making these decisions, or the safety department or legal department, would really have to vet this. Was the coworker trained uh, to to uh, be able to uh, recognize impairment. One of the things I always tell clients when they're setting up uh, drug and alcohol uh, or substance abuse prevention programs is that supervisors have to be trained in order to be able to tell, you know, what constitutes uh, impairment, uh, whether it be drugs or alcohol. Now, obviously, if somebody enters the room breast first and it's clear they were having breakfast with Jack Daniels and Jim Beam, you know, <laughs> it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. Whereas when you're saying uh, in your, your hypothetical that Bob was acting oddly, uh, you know, well, what's odd? You know, maybe he had had a fight with his wife that morning and right. was really upset about something. Maybe he didn't get any sleep the night before because he has a new baby at home. I mean, there could be lots of reasons lots of people reasons. act oddly, and they're not all impairment. Maybe maybe the person is uh, is bipolar, and they're acting oddly because they're meds. Now you're into a whole ADA analysis. Right. Um, so I would be asking, playing devil's advocate, who is this coworker, and what what is the basis for their uh, observations? Sure. Uh, secondly, I'd be wanting to know: is there any bias here? Yeah. Is this coworker a friend or a foe? 
you know, is it yeah. a relative? Jealousy, um, yeah, you know, in the workplace, anything. Believe it or not, uh, <laughs> you know, so, sometimes, sometimes relatives will rat you out before your friends will. So <laughs> uh, you'd have to really look at whether there is any animus between these two employees. Um, because, again, there, there can be other forces at work. And this is, with reasonable suspicion, always something that, that tends to come up in the discussions. Well, that supervisor's just out to get me. You know, and, this, and this especially is true if the supervisor does tend to single out certain individuals repeatedly for drug mm-hmm. testing, especially if those tests keep coming back negative. Now it's, you know, it can cross the line into harassment and you can get into a wealth of other issues like, you know, uh, racial or gender or religious uh, discrimination issues as well. And I have had those come up in cases. So you have to be very careful on how you manage your reasonable suspicion testing. Uh, Post-accident, in the old days, before this rule, it was a nice bright line. Someone's injured, you send them for the test. Now you've got to do another layer of analysis on that. OSHA has definitely complicated the situation. Yeah, so going on, this is my, I guess this is my last question, but it, it also works well with what you just said. The, with the post-accident you know, blanket drug testing that OSHA uh, used to do. So the rules preamble suggests that employers that do implement a blanket post-injury drug testing have to definitively establish that the test is not a form of retaliation against the employee. How would well, an employer establish that they are definitively not retaliating? Well, until such time as OSHA comes out with guidance, the best that that I have been able to come up with to recommend to uh, my clients is take it out of the correlation between the injury and the drug test or, or alcohol test. And change it up if you can. You know, obviously, if you're under a union contract, you'll have to wait until the contract is renegotiated. But going forward, characterize it as post-incident drug testing, not post-accident. And sever the tie between an OSHA recordable being the trigger for the test. If you include property damage only incidents, then... The fact that someone is injured or not is is uh, you know not uh, you know a significant factor in this. You're saying if property damage occurs, two hundred and fifty dollars or more, pick a pick a number, then everyone involved in the incident gets tested. That's fine. So if no one is use my forklift incident, the guy loses control of his forklift, but instead of hitting uh, our our person who was standing in the pedestrian zone, he's able to jump out of the way, and instead the forklift hits a stack of shelves. A bunch of merchandise falls off the shelf and, you know, damages $1,000 worth of property. But the forklift operator's not injured, the pedestrian is not injured, you've got no injury, you're still going to drug test the forklift operator in that situation because he did property damage. If you have a policy like that, there's no way that OSHA could come back and say you're only drug testing people who've been injured, and that's right. really what their concern is. Um, so I think that's a good way to kind of break the link between the injury and the drug testing. Yeah. The other thing would be simply to eliminate the post-accident drug testing entirely and fall back on reasonable suspicion uh, and leave it at that. Um, but uh, anything where, where it's the injury that triggers the test, 
OSHA's going to have a hard time with that, I think, going forward, unless you can opine uh, in a way that will satisfy them how you determined that impairment was a likely causal factor in the accident. Definitely good tips there, Adele. Um, Thank you. Uh, That's all we have here on EHS on Tap. I'd like to thank Adele for taking the time um, out of her day to provide us with her knowledge on the matter. Um, If listeners would like to follow up with Adele, she can be reached at safetylawyer at AOL.com. Thank you, Adele. This podcast was brought to you by BLR. Thanks for listening.